Bibles, if you've got them, to the Gospel according to Luke. The fifth chapter of the Gospel according to Luke, beginning in the first verse. And I want you to see a few things as we walk through the Bible. God is a wondrous God and he speaks. How many, how many heard from God during the music this morning? As we worshiped him, as we opened our voice and we sang praises to him. God speaks. God is continually speaking. And I'll tell you this. The Bible tells us in Romans that all creation eagerly and anxiously anticipates for the sons of God to be revealed. And I will tell you what I have observed here in this part of Louisiana, in Jennings, in Eunice, in Crowley, what I've seen on Facebook is that the sons and daughters of God have been revealing themselves in the light of this crisis. So one day, Jesus, he was standing by the lake at Gennesaret, and the people were crowding around him and listening to the word of God. Some translations say it a little bit differently. They say that they were anxious to hear the word of God. They were anxious to hear the word of God. And church, we've got to be anxious to hear the word of God. We're going to stick with verse 1 for a while. Hearing the word of God. Over in Hebrews, we read a few things. It says, Christ as a son over his own house, whose house are we. If we hold fast to the confidence and the rejoicing of the hope firm unto the end... The Holy Ghost says, today, if you'll hear his voice. Church, right now, we need to stand fast and hold fast in the confidence of Jesus and the hope. We need to rejoice in the hope. Not in the circumstance, not in the waves, not in the storm that surrounds us, but in the hope of Christ. Do you hear what I'm saying? Hearing is essential to our walk with Christ. Hearing is essential to a satisfied life. He who has ears, let him hear what the Spirit says. We got to hear. And these people were crowding around Jesus to hear the word of God. You know, John, John known as the disciple whom Jesus loved. We read about him laying his head upon the breast of Jesus. We've got to press in. We've got to crowd in. We've got to push in. John was so close to Jesus that he could hear his heartbeat as he placed his head upon his breast. He could hear the thunder of his voice even as he whispered. Because when you put your head on somebody's chest, even the slightest sound is loud and clear. And Jesus wants us in times of trouble, in times of despair, in times of loss, to be able to run into his arms and have our head pressed against his beating heart and hear the voice of our risen Savior saying, it's going to be okay. And we respond by saying, it is well. We've got to learn to press in and hear the word of God. And Jesus saw two boats standing by the lake, verse 2. He saw two boats at the water's edge, left there by the fishermen who were off washing their nets. And as I read this, and this week, it, it just spoke new things. You know, the Bible, nothing new. There is no new revelation in the direct sense of the word. Everything that needs to be revealed has been revealed. But God still speaks. And he shines light upon that which has been revealed. So that we may see and hear new and fresh things that we have not seen or heard before. It's all been revealed. But we just don't see or hear it. So when we preach and we preach something new. We do need to line it up with the word of God. The book of Acts tells us that the Bereans were more noble than the Thessalonians because they studied the word daily to see if what Paul said was true. 
We need to make sure what our revelation is lines up with the Scripture. But God will shine light on the Scripture and make us see things that we could not see before. I'm getting old. I didn't used to wear readers. I can't see. I was in a restaurant yesterday, and I had to pull out my iPhone and shine the light on the menu. Why do they make restaurants so dark? It's like, are they afraid you're going to see the food they're serving you? I don't have to worry about that down here in Louisiana because y'all know how to cook. Praise God, I ate so much yesterday. I am, and it was spicy, Cajun, awesome, wonderful things. And tell me, in Albania, everybody likes bland food with nothing on it. It's just like, it's, you, you give them a little spice and they're like, eh. So it was like, I had some spicy Cajun food yesterday. It was awesome and I ate way too much. And I could see it because we were outside in the sunlight. Praise God. But you go to a restaurant, it's all dark and they hand you a menu. It's like, what is this? But if you take the light out and shine it on it, you can see more. Now, did you know? Your eyes, the aperture in your eye, the iris, if you study photography or television, you'll know that the broader the, uh, the aperture, the wider the lens, the less uh, depth of field you've got. So only a little bit is in focus and everything else is, is blurry. If you, fo- if, if you narrow it down, you can get a lot more things in focus. Well, when you have a lot of light... Your eye contracts like that. And so things become more in focus. When the light of Jesus is firing on your life, you can become pinpoint focus. You can see things that you cannot see when the light of Jesus is not shining. So we need to move in the light as he is in the light. So there are two boats standing by the river left there by the fishermen who were washing their nets. Now, as I was reading this, I just had this great burden. I shared this with Pastor Bubba yesterday. And he was like, oh, man of God. You don't know. I got this painting. Anyway, he took me and showed me his painting about who cares. Y'all seen that? His mama painted it. I'm like, Lord Jesus. That's what this verse is about. Who are the fishermen? The church are the fishers of men. We are the fishermen and God has given us vessels. Vessels to reach the lost. I heard about some of you. I don't know whether you're from Eunice or Jennings, but having to take the boats out and rescue people out of houses. An empty boat on the seashore doesn't reach anybody. And America and Albania and the world are full of great vessels that God has created. And they're nowhere. They're on the seashore. You know, the sea represents the mass of humanity. When we read in Revelation, I saw before me a sea of crystal like glass. It's that peace of people, the people at peace. But right now, it's a sea of turmoil. How many of you know that the world is in turmoil? Everywhere I look, it's gone crazy. What used to be normal is now abnormal. What used to be abnormal is now normal. People are living in fear. A month ago, the the nation of England or United Kingdom voted to leave the European Union, and that threw everything in Europe in turmoil. It's like it's merely institutions. They're man-made things, and the word says heaven and earth will pass away. But my word will never pass away. We need to hear the word because it's eternal. We need to know the word because he, the word, is eternal. Jesus is the word. So the world is a sea of tumult. It's messed up. And God has created us as fishers of men. And he's given us the tools that we need. He's given us the boats and the nets. And as I read this, I began to weep. 
Because as the storm rages in the sea around us, we're busy making our tools pretty. Now, I don't necessarily say that about you. But we're part of the body of Christ. And the bulk of the body of Christ are not fishing. They are washing nets. Last Friday, I preached in a church, a lovely church up in eastern Ohio in the midst of Appalachia. And they had these two big swords, double-handed swords representing the sword of the spirit. And they were hanging on the wall. And actually, the pastor said something about, we need to get those down during the, during the worship time. And I felt like, what an application. He's given us the sword of the spirit. He's given us prayer and fasting. He's given us his word. He's given us tools to reach the lost. And we hang them like ornaments on our church, on our necks, and yet we never use them. We've parked our boats at the edge of the water on the side of our culture because we're intimidated by the Goliath that stands and says, who are you? We're intimidated by the world. So as the world goes to hell, we stay at the water's edge because we're afraid to go out into the water, not to be like the water and drown, but to take our vessels and save. Does that make sense? Does that speak to anybody this morning? The church has been intimidated to being sidelined and useless, polishing our boats and washing our nets while the world is overwhelmed by a flood of decadence. And I'm just glad that you responded and didn't wait for unnamed agencies to come in And do the things that the church is commissioned to do. Does that make sense? Praise the Lord. And bless you mightily for responding. Bless you mightily for being that testimony, that witness for Christ Jesus that shows people that no, we're not haters. We're not that which the Goliaths of the world would stand and say, you. Who do you think you are to stand Tremble in fear. The Bible says the armies of God came and they stood and they trembled in fear as Philistine came out and shouted and thundered with his loud voice. But little David came up and said, who do you think you are? You uncircumcised Philistine to defy the armies of God. Well, the thing is the Philistine had renamed the armies of God. He said, You think you armies of Saul can defeat me? And we've got people in this world. We've got people in this nation that stands up to the church and calls us the haters and tells us to shut up and go away. It's not hate to tell your children not to stick their hand on the lit fire on the stove. It's love. Even when you say, get away from that. You know what I mean? It's not hate when a kid's running out into the street and a bus is coming and you scream at the top of your lungs, get out of the road. To someone that doesn't know what's going on, why are you yelling at your child? Because I'm saving their lives. Church, we need to get in the boat. And quit paying attention to how nice our nets look. Now, there's nothing wrong with having a wonderful, comfortable place like this, like over in Jennings, to worship God. In Albania, when I first moved there, the country was a complete mess. I mean, it was, it was the worst country I'd ever visited, and I visited some bad places. But usually they had a section, like in the capital, that was built up. Albania was 
horrible. For 25 years, for 50 years, they suffered under communism. For the final 25 years of communism, it was state-enforced atheism with a constitution that said there is no God. The only country on earth to ever say in their constitution, there is no God. They isolated themselves from the rest of the world. They had no friends. They, they kicked the Russians out when Khrushchev said Stalin was a bad guy. How many of you know Stalin was a bad guy? He killed some 20 million Russians. The dictator of Albania said he's my hero and Khrushchev said he was bad. So they literally kicked the Russians out of Albania. They said go. So their only friend in the world was China. Then in 1974, China met with Nixon. They kicked the Russians or they kicked the Chinese out for collaborating with the enemy. And we all know that that was like a really friendly visit. So from 1974 until 1992, Albania had no allies. It had no support mechanism. When I moved there, they had Chinese trucks from the 1960s were what the government was using. They had 30-year-old Chinese trucks is what the government was using. There's still a few of them on the road. The buses were Chinese buses from the 1970s. And they kept them up, but they had no friends. They had nothing. The dictator said in 1974 that the greatest accomplishment of the people of Albania was the eradication of religion from their society. And then he bragged about it. He said, in just one generation, from 1944 to 1967, we were able to eliminate all religion from our country. He said, here's how we did it. Through a systematic programming of the mind. Through media, through schools, and through entertainment. And people then at, from 1944 to 1967 continued to receive a message over their radios, in their newspapers, as they were being educated, that when in 1967 he said, you know what, there is no God, they all said, you're right. And I will tell you this, and it breaks my heart. I look at America today, and I see a systematic pro reprogramming of the mind. In the schools, in the media, in entertainment that are driving us away from God. I know you've been talking about detox. And I, I appreciate churches. I appreciate the homeschool movement. I appreciate Christian schools. But I talk to people who are isolated in such a way, but they're still being toxified by the culture. You cannot escape that. But Jesus said in Romans 12, through the Holy Spirit and Paul, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Church, we've got to guard our minds. Even the little things can mess us up. And we begin accepting a lie as though it's truth. We begin to wonder... Are we haters? We begin to wonder, maybe we're wrong. You know, John the Baptist, who leapt in his mother's womb at the presence of Jesus, who walked and prepared the way for Christ, his world fell apart. He was in prison. They were going to cut his head off. And he said, what? It's like, maybe this isn't Jesus. Maybe Jesus isn't the one. He had doubt. And he called people and he said, ask Jesus, are you the one or is there another? And Jesus sent back and said, yeah, I'm the one. You know, circumstance can cause us to doubt. But when we're grounded, when we're grounded, we've got something to hold on to. And even that doubt can be set aside. So John the Baptist went to sleep that night and he got up the next morning and was executed. But he slept. Because he was at peace. Because he knew Jesus was the one. And it didn't matter if his head got cut off or not. Because he knew that Jesus was the one. And when we know Jesus is the one, 
It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. He can rebuild. He can restore. He can redeem. He can take the worst life. He can take the worst offense and he can turn it all around. He can find that which is good within us that he created and he can bring it to the forefront. He sure can. So Jesus got into one of the boats. Jesus got into one of the boats, which was Simon's. And he asked him to put out a little from shore. And then he sat down and he taught people from the boat. Now, I didn't, when you read this and you think about what I just said about the boat sitting on the shore, you know, there's a lot of churches that just have stopped preaching Jesus. There's a lot of churches that have stopped rescuing people. They've made people comfortable. You know what? Jesus will even show up in those places. Jesus will even show up in those places because Jesus is God and God is omnipresent. He's everywhere. And Jesus can show up even in the places that we look at as dead. And he will teach. He will teach. He will show up in the boat. Jesus wants none to perish, but all to come to repentance. You know, There was a time when Jesus told his disciples, let's get in the boat and we're going to the other side. They got in. The Bible tells us he was asleep on a cushion and a big storm rose up. And they all panicked and they went to him and said, what are you doing asleep? Don't you care if we drown? He was like, what's the big deal? He got up and he told the wind and the rain and the waves. He said, stop, peace be still. And I think peace be still was as much for the wind and the waves as it was for his disciples. But you know what? He was in the boat. And what were they doing? They weren't paying attention to Jesus. They were doing their busy work. They were doing whatever they were doing. Sometimes Jesus shows up and we're so busy. We're so much doing our stuff that we don't even notice that he's there until until something happens. You know, Albania was declared atheistic in 1967. Nobody prayed. Nobody evangelized. They literally burned down churches and mosques. They eradicated Islam. They eradicated Christianity. They eradicated everything. They took pastors and priests and imams. And they told them, you will renounce your faith as failed ideology or you will die. Many of them said, I was wrong. God does not exist. The ones that didn't, they put on television. They either hung them or shot them in the head live on television in 1967. I worked in television in the news for the government for five years in Albania. And I saw the footage and it was horrible. And they put it on TV. And the people were intimidated. There were no Christians in Albania from 1967 to 1992. But you know what? Jesus was there anyway. Jesus never left that country, nor did he forsake it. And in 1992, the communist government fell. And now there are 140 churches. Unfortunately, in a country of three and a half million people, there's only about 15,000 Christians. But... God's still there. We have to press into here. In the midst of peace and prosperity, sometimes we forget. We don't need to press into God. He's in the boat with us, but we're doing our thing. We're going on a boat cruise across the the sea until the waves come up. And it's like, (gasps) where's Jesus? I'll tell you what, I believe, as, uh, as Pastor Jamie said, good things are going to result of what fallen creation wanted to do for bad. And I think you're going to see some revival here. I think you're going to see some people come to Jesus that would never have come to Jesus unless the waters came up and touched them. And they would never have come to Jesus unless they saw Jesus in you. So praise God, Amen. praise God. He offered an opportunity in the, in, in the midst of crisis 
for him to be glorified and people to be saved, not only their natural lives, but their eternal lives. So Jesus will get in the boat and teach. And when he stopped speaking, he told Simon, verse 4, put out in the deep water and let down the nets for a catch. Now we all know, well, how many of you know, that Peter, James, and John were professional fishermen. Got any professional fishermen here? Are you guys too far away from the coast? Y'all have some good stuff. (laughs) Professional fishermen. How many know what Jesus was besides the son of God? Jesus was a carpenter. He built things out of wood. So these professional fishermen were out there in the boat. Or at least Peter was, Simon And Jesus said, let's go a little deeper and go fishing. Now, Peter, in the next verse, said, Master, we've worked hard all night and haven't caught anything. So in other words, he's like, but Jesus, you're a carpenter. We've been doing what we do all night long. There's nothing happening out there. You know, the Bible is full of but God moments. There's times when it's everything looked bad, but God fixed everything. But there's also those times when God said, do this. And the person said, but God, you know, sometimes God talks to us and we say, but God, I don't feel like it. It's like, come put a tarp on my house. But God, I've been working hard all day. That's not going to, she got a little leak. But God does something different that changes a life. We have the, but God, and he's got the, but God. And when we're willing to lay ourselves down and listen to the request, we experience a, but God moment. Amen. Amen. Praise the Lord. But God. So, Peter, I mean, he respected Jesus. He's like, but I I do this sometimes. Like I said, I worked in media. I worked in television. I worked in management. I went to grad school. I think I know a lot. So when somebody tells me what to do, there are times when I'm like, in my mind, I'll admit this. You'll never see me again. No, you'll see me again, but... I, in my mind, I'm like, you're an idiot. But I'll do it just to show you I know more than you do. I'll do it your way because I know it's not going to work because I'm the professional. I know everything, you know, and I don't know everything. I just know more than everybody else. I'll do it your way just to show you you're an idiot. You ever done that? Somebody comes to you and they know, why don't you try my way? And you're like, it's not going to work. But we'll do it just to show you how smart I am. So I think Peter was kind of that way. He's like, it's not going to work. But because you're Jesus, out of respect, I'll go ahead and do it. But I'm really doing it just to show you that you don't know what you're talking about. Have you ever done that to God? God says, do this. And you're like, well, all right, but it's not going to work. And then you get a, but God moment. You're like, whoa, maybe I should listen to God more often. He told me to leave my career. I was, I was in the place I had dreamed of being since I was 14 years old. I was in the position. I was working in media at high levels. And he said, Now you need to resign all that, move to Europe, and make no money. And I'm like, but God. You know, he promised Abraham a son. Abraham trusted him, but not enough. He had the wrong son, but God still gave him the son of blessing. And then he said, okay, now sacrifice him. And Abraham didn't say, but God, he said, okay. And when he said, okay, everything worked out well. 
It took me a while, but I finally said, okay. I worked in media in America for 17 years. And I finally said, okay, and I left everything and I went to Europe. And the past 18 years have been an amazing and wonderful walk of faith. And I've seen God do amazing miracles in people's lives and do great things for his name. Because I said, okay. But I made a deal with him. I'm like, I'll give you a year. I went to England for a year. When I got to England, I found Albania. And I went to Albania for two years. And I've been in Albania for 17. And I don't know when I'm leaving. When God says to, because I've learned to listen to him. I did find out something interesting today, though. The, the, the people that founded the church I'm now pastoring. They found it in 1992 as the fourth church in the country. It's the fourth oldest church in the country. They were from Louisiana. The second pastor was from Louisiana. He was from New Iberia. I'm not sure where that is, but the second pastor was from New Iberia. He lives in Slidell now. But then the third pastor was from South Carolina. He came back to America and, and pastored a church in Philadelphia, an Albanian church with foreigners. Well, he retired six months ago. Guess where he is? Lafayette. I'm like, well, at least I know when I retire or when I'm done in Albania, I guess I'm coming to Louisiana. Because <laughs> it seems to be the place. There's a connection there. And I'm not sure why, but there's a connection there. And I, this, was a, this was a God connection with Pastor Bubba. You know, we met in London. Pastor Bubba and I met in London. And now I, I, feel, I feel so at home. I mean, I met Pastor Jamie yesterday, and I'm not real comfortable sleeping in people's houses. Not because they're, they're always comfortable, but I'm like, oh, I might mess something up, or I might do something wrong. And it's like family. I really, I, I, I slept well. I wasn't worried about messing anything up. I wasn't messing, worried about doing anything culturally insensitive. You guys are wonderful hosts. I probably do do all those things, but you don't care. So <laughs> praise the Lord. You, have, you are a family of grace that deals with my peculiarity. So Simon said, yeah, okay. I'm the fisherman. You're the carpenter. You obviously know more about fishing than I do. So let's do this so I can prove you wrong. And then in chapter 6, they had done so, and they caught such a large number of fish that their nets began to break. These nets that they were making pretty. They were off washing them and making them all nice and pretty. So they looked like really good professional fishermen. But they weren't good enough to actually handle what Jesus had in store. Sometimes we decorate and, I mean, again, don't get me wrong. Decorate your church. Keep it clean. Make it pretty. But that's not the purpose of the church, to say how big our building is. I lived in England. There's a lot of big, beautiful church buildings that are bars and cafes restaurants and some of them are now even mosques because they sat on the seashore and never got anything done except their stained glass polished so it wasn't enough so they called the other fishermen in verse 7 they said hey come out here and bring the other boat and so finally when revival happens when revival hits osc in eunice it's going to impact the other boats even if they've been sitting on the sideline and even if you look at them in judgment and you're like that's the deadest driest church i've ever seen when revival hits here we want revival to infest every boat in the city so much that they're so full of the power and river of God that they too begin to sink under the presence of the glory of God. Verse 8. When Peter saw this, he was just like, I am not worthy. I am not worthy. See, he had an attitude. He knew more than Jesus. And this is his admission. This is his repentance. This is the transformation of his mind. He said, go away from me. I'm sinful. But Jesus knew that all along. And he brought 
a typology of revival that transformed in verse 9. He and all his companions were astonished at the catch of fish they'd taken, verse 10. And so were James and John who were in the other boat. And Jesus said, don't be afraid. Don't fear me. Don't be afraid of the glory of God. Don't be afraid of the convicting power of the Holy Spirit that floods your soul. That causes you to get on your knees and say, Lord, I'm not worthy. Go away from me for I'm sinful. But allow the angel to take the coal from the altar in heaven and touch your lips and say, you are made whole. And now you will be fishers of men. You know, church, we've got to learn to unlearn. We have to learn to unlearn the things that we know. We need to put our confidence. We we need to unlearn being so confident and comfortable in what we know. We have to unlearn being comfortable and confident in what we know so that we can become confident in Jesus himself. We have to learn to do things that are not necessarily comfortable and not necessarily line up with our previously indoctrinated and programmed mind. Does that make sense? Our purpose has always been and will always be reaching people and building lives. We exist not only for those who call our Savior's church their home, but also for the many in our community who have yet to find new life in Christ. What are we willing to... Of course it's good. It's on your wall. (laughs) I didn't write that. What are we willing to do in order to reach people for Jesus? Are we willing after a day of toil of giving out water and pulling people out of the flood and putting tarps on the roof to go out and do it again? Are we willing to say, I know what I'm doing, but because Jesus says so, I'm going to do it differently Because there's a lost world that needs Jesus. What are we willing to do in order to reach people for Jesus? America's in a sorry state. Because the church has parked their boats on the sea, side of the sea. And there are people drowning all around us. We're like, yeah, but have you seen how nice and shiny my net is? Man, when revival starts breaking out, we're going to be ready. We'll have the nicest net and the biggest boat. Open your eyes and see the field is white for the harvest. So therefore, ask the Lord of the harvest to send workers into the field. We were driving out to Pastor Jamie's house. And he said he had some cows. And I know they're not all cows. They're probably some bulls and cows. But see, where I grew up, they're all cows. And when I was little, I learned to drive on the farm. I learned to drive the tractor first when we would put in hay to feed the cows during the winter. See, there's this, y'all probably know this, there's this season called winter. (laughs) There's this white stuff that falls from the sky and gets on the ground. Anyway, um, and the way we do it, it, you know, it was the annual or two times a season putting in of hay. And so they'd go out and cut the hay, dry it, bale it, and then we'd go get the bales. I got to drive the tractor. So at 6 o'clock in the morning, I'm driving the tractor nice and slow through the field. They're throwing the hay bales up, stacking them. We go back, put them in the barn, go back out, get more, put it in the barn, go back out. About 11 o'clock, we stop for lunch. And there's two wagons just full of a spread. Fried chicken, mashed potatoes, macaroni and cheese, baked beans, baked ham, bacon, (laughs) 
It was a party. It was a feast. And I loved it every year because it's like, we're going to have that big. It was like a family reunion because everybody comes to put all and you have this big feast. And I looked forward to it because I got to drive the tractor and eat a lot of food and play around. But the day wasn't about playing around, driving a tractor, and eating food. That's what I thought. But it was about bringing in the harvest. And the meal was there so we would have the energy. Can I tell you a story from last night <laughs> about Ethan? I won't tell the whole story. But Ethan, where are you? You're over there. He was telling me a story one morning because Ethan, they, they were out doing some farm work. <laughs> Early one, And Ethan hadn't eaten breakfast. And he's holding a pig, right? He was holding a pig, right? And he's like, Oh, I'm not sorry. I'm not feeling so good. And he basically passed out because he hadn't eaten. And so Pastor Jamie called his wife and said, bring him a piece of cake, <laughs> which is, which is the cure to end all cures. <laughs> but he hadn't eaten. You know, the purpose of that feast was to prepare the real workers, not the little kid driving the tractor, but the real workers, to go out and finish the task of bringing in the harvest. And I'll tell you, I've been in some awesome church services where I've seen miracles and signs and wonders. I've seen the power of God fall. I've laid on the floor and entered into the throne room of heaven. But it wasn't so I could feast and say, oh, that was a wonderful experience. It was so I could then go out into the field and bring in the harvest. Because I will tell you, no matter how wonderful the feast at a church service, as a revival service, at a river service, whatever you call it, I, I've hung around Pastor Cluddy Keith. I mean, I've been in the river of God and I've feasted at the table. But there's a feast that's going to happen that will make all of this look like scraps. And the purpose of the feasting today is not the feast. It is the harvest. And it is to invigorate and empower the body of Christ to go out and be fishers of men. I'm going to try not to talk forever. Next verse. So they pulled their boats up on shore and left everything and followed him. Because, yes, now we've changed the... So it's all right that the boats are on shore now because they're no longer the church. But anyway, uh, so they, they followed Jesus. They committed to not doing things their way, but to doing things God's way. Not being obedient to their knowledge, their understanding. The, the book of Corinthians tells us we have weapons with divine power for tearing down strongholds, destroying arguments, and demolishing every lofty thought that would hold itself up against knowing God. See, we're being indoctrinated by a culture that gives us logics and arguments and thoughts that would keep us from knowing God. And we're surrounded by people who have been covered by teaching and experience and cultural things that keep them from knowing God. They're merely arguments. They're merely a battlefield in the mind. And that's why we need to be able to pray with power to break the strongholds, to tear down the arguments, not to go and make a debate, but to say, Lord, open their eyes and open their ears. So as in the first verse of this, they can hear clearly the word of God. All right, so we need to, we've, we've, we've come to an understanding in that part of Luke that we need to be willing to get out of our confidence and comfortable of it in ourselves and move into the place of God. So then the Holy Spirit continues to inspire Dr. Luke to write, while Jesus was in one of the towns, a man came along who was covered with leprosy. Now, if a man's covered with leprosy, he's had it for a while. It's not something that just popped up. If he's covered, he's covered with leprosy. And when he saw Jesus, he fell with his face to the ground and begged him. He said, Lord, if you're willing, you can make me clean. 
Now, he hadn't heard Jesus teaching on prayer. He says, your will be done. Your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. But he understood that his prayer needed to be in line with the will of God. Now, we know from teaching and, and from things that other people have taught that God is a loving father and no loving father wants their child to be sick or afflicted. And therefore, when we become sick and afflicted, we know the will of God is healing. We also know from the Bible that Jesus wants none to perish, but all to come to repentance. So he wants everyone to be saved. So we can pray with confidence. We can ask with confidence. We can offer up petitions with confidence before the throne of God that we have gained access through the blood of Jesus. We can go and we can say, Lord, heal the afflicted for your glory. We can say, Lord, break the stronghold that keeps this person in bondage to sin that they may repent and know the glory of God and eternal life. And so this man understood that. And he said, Jesus, if it is your will, you can make me clean. If you're willing, if you want to, you can make me clean. You can take away this thing that has afflicted me. You can take away this thing that has made me a cast off of society, that has made me an untouchable, that has made me an unlovable. He was covered with leprosy. You didn't touch lepers. You didn't communicate with lepers. Lepers were pushed aside. And you know what? Today in America, we have a lot of lepers. We have people that we just don't talk to. We have people that aren't welcome in our churches. We have people. Now, they need to be touched by Jesus in order to be made clean. They need to be detoxed. Because we don't want their disease, we want them. We don't want their affliction, we want them in the kingdom of God. And Jesus is the answer to their affliction. Jesus is the answer to their affliction. So here's what Jesus said. He reached out his hand and he touched him. And he said, I'm willing, be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him. But Jesus reached out his hand. And he touched this leper, this man who was full of leprosy. Now just imagine, you'd had no physical contact. No one had dared touch you for the amount of years it took for leprosy to cover your body. And you never expected to be touched again. And yet Jesus reached out and touched him. Most of the world was afraid of lepers. That they might catch it. That it might change them. So they ignored them and stayed away from them. But Jesus was willing to reach out and touch him. And said, be clean. You know, I work in a country that was 70% Muslim in 1967. I didn't understand why God allowed atheism to infest Albania. But you know, all that 70% Muslim aren't Muslim anymore. But I went over to Macedonia. Macedonia wasn't atheistic. Albanians are minority there. There's about a third of the country. And they are fierce Muslims. It's part of their identity. It's like, we are Muslim. Because the rest of the country doesn't like them and the rest of the country isn't Muslim. So it's the one thing that they can unite in. We are Muslim and we are Albanian. So, of course, I went over with a group and we preached in the Muslim section of the capital. And we were threatened. They came and they ripped up things. They tried to steal our Bibles and they said, get out of here or you'll die. I'm going to die anyway. Some people say, aren't you worried living over there? I'm like... I'm going to die anyway. I'd much rather die doing what God wants me to do than what I want to do. I don't think he's done with me, so I don't think I'm going to die anytime soon. So we preached the gospel in the Albanian language in the open, which had not been done 
probably since Paul did. Well, he didn't do it in the Albanian language, but uh, it's probably never been done. But you know what? It's hard to go into Muslim countries and Muslim areas and preach the gospel. I know a few people with some underground churches in the Middle East. They've got to be very secretive, and they can't reach a lot of people. I believe, I'm going to get slightly political, but I believe there is a desire to fundamentally transform America by importing Islam into this nation. But God, but God loves the world and wants none to perish. We can't go to Saudi Arabia. We can't go to Syria. We can't go to Jordan. We can't go to Iran. We can't go to Iraq and preach the gospel. But we can go to Lafayette. We can go to LSU. We can go to the universities where all these people are. And we can preach the gospel without fear of the government coming and closing us down today. But a lot of the church, a lot of Christians are afraid of this and intimidated by the onslaught of Islam into America. And I say, open your eyes and see. The field's white for the harvest. Touch the untouchable. Touch them and let them, let Jesus touch them and they will be clean. That affliction, that deceit will make them clean. There's an onslaught of deception that is invading American society. The, the idea that God made a mistake when he created me and he gave me the wrong DNA and he gave me the wrong body parts and I'm not who I am, I'm something else, is a deceit and a lie of the enemy. And it's not something we need to be afraid of. It's something we need to touch and heal. We don't need to encourage. We don't need to humor. We don't need to walk in agreement with the deception. But we need to walk in grace and love to bring people to Jesus. We need to be willing to touch the people that we're not supposed to touch. We need to be willing to do things differently than what we've learned. And we need to be willing to touch the untouchables. Next verse. Jesus said, don't tell anybody, but show yourself to the priest so that you can be sealed as healed and delivered. Offer the sacrifices as a testimony. So that's like, now you're set free. Now get sealed with the Holy Spirit. Come to the church and grow and, and change. Next. Yet the news that spread. And so more people came to what? To hear and to be healed. Church, we got to hear. Where are the miracles? We haven't been listening to God. He's saying, pray for that person. We're praying for this one. The other thing is signs and wonders aren't for the church. They're for the lost. How much are we doing out there? Praise God this week. You've been doing it out there. But how much are we doing out there? It's like, I want to see signs and wonders. We'll get out of the seat after church and go pray for somebody at Walmart. What are we willing to do in order to reach more people? If our passion is really about reaching people, what are we willing to do? Are we willing to go into the places where we don't go? Are we, you know, the, the neighborhoods that are scary? Lock your doors. Are we willing to talk and pray for the people that don't even want to hear it? Are we willing to show the love of Christ? Next. But Jesus often went through to lonely places and prayed. Church, we need to withdraw sometimes. We need to get away with Jesus. Y'all have been working really hard this week, and you know there's a time you need to recharge as it were you just need to get away you need to stop doing the stuff and you need to just be intimate with jesus put your head on his chest and listen to the sound of his heartbeat next 
One day Jesus was teaching and Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there. This one's good. They'd come from every village of Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem. And the power of the Lord was there to heal the sick. Now we know that the Pharisees and the teachers of the law were not necessarily the best people. And they really weren't fans of Jesus. But they had come and crowded in as well. They'd come from all over. This is a religious type of a religious church. But you know what? Jesus was there and so was the power to heal the sick. Doesn't matter who's in the crowd. Jesus is Jesus is Jesus is Jesus is Jesus. But these religious people and these religious things had gotten, they'd packed the house. Next. So some men were carrying a paralyzed man on a bed and tried to take him into the house to lay him before Jesus. But they couldn't find a way to do this because of the crowd. So they went up on the roof. They cut a hole in the roof and they let him down before Jesus. We'll pause there. First of all, it would be awesome to have so many people in this place that you couldn't get to the, to the, to the front. Can you imagine vehicles lined up all along both roads trying to get into the parking lot and the place crowded? You know, Jesus is here. Jesus is here. I know that because he and I have been talking for the past hour. Jesus is here. But people don't know it. People don't know it. People don't know what you've got here. But they're learning. They're seeing it as you walk out, as you do the stuff. They're seeing it. And someday it's going to be so crowded. And it may be in the result of a much bigger crisis than you just passed. But someday, I remember in 2001. How many of you were even alive in 2001? Seems like it was just yesterday. I remember every day churches were open and people were cramming in to pray in September and October of 2001. The news where they usually, well, you guys don't have school closings either. Or maybe you do for hurricanes or something. But, you know, along the bottom of the news, it was like prayer meeting. And they would list all these churches and places you could go to pray. That was just 15 years ago. I doubt that that's what would happen today. I think America has changed so much. I doubt that that would be promoted. But, man, people were packing churches after 9-11. People were running to God. And the church wasn't ready for them. They were washing their nets. The church wasn't ready to bring healing. You know, the power of the Lord was there to heal them, but nobody was there to release it. But I think something like that's going to happen again. There is going to be a great revival and people are going to run to Jesus. And I know I'm talking long, but. So they couldn't find a way in because of all the religious people and all the religious stuff that were blocking the way. And I've been in churches where a lot of religion gets in the way of bringing people to Jesus. But even physically, they're carrying a guy on a bed. Then they carry him up to the roof. How easy is it to get on this roof? How easy is it to get on this roof carrying a man on a bed? Pretty tough. They were determined that nothing was going to get in the way of getting this guy to Jesus. What are you willing to do in order to bring people to Jesus? So they crawled up. So, so they crawled up to the roof and then they cut a hole in the roof. Now, Pastor Jamie, if we're talking and suddenly like this black stuff starts falling because somebody's cutting a hole in the roof, you're probably not going to be real happy. Although you're really good at putting tarp over that stuff, so you'll be fine. <laughs> but yeah, so not only did they do physically difficult things, they did something. It was not their building. And they cut a hole in the roof. They did things that were totally out of line in order to bring this guy to Jesus. Next. When Jesus saw their faith, he said, now that he was paralyzed, they'd heard about Jesus' healing. They brought him there to heal. They climbed on the roof. They lowered him through a hole. And Jesus said, wow, your sins are forgiven. And I imagine that a few of them were disappointed. 
I'm like, what? He's paralyzed on a mat. We brought him here to walk. What's his sins forgiven stuff? You know, I go out and I do a, something I call a gypsy church with the Roma community in Albania. And we go out. It's a really interesting community. Um, the gypsies, there are 13 different uh, ethnic groups of gypsies in Albanian, all related but very different. Some of them have integrated into society and others are very, very fringe. The group I work with are very fringe. They live in dirt floor, cardboard, you know. They'll, they'll take these and build houses out of them if they find them. I built houses for them back when I first moved there and they'd take them apart and sell the stuff so that they could have money. So I realized I'm not going to change their culture. They, they want shelter. They don't want a home. They want to be protected. You know, they, they want a tarp over their head. They don't want a place where they can polish their nets. And I go out, and, and at first we were just going out and feeding them. And I'm like, we've got to do more because if we're just feeding them, we're basically just a spiritual hospice where we're making them feel comfortable or comforting their affliction, and yet they are still on a pathway to hell. I said, I want to be a hospital where they get well. And I have the gift of the Holy Spirit and I have the knowledge of the saving grace of Jesus Christ. So I'm going to preach to them. And so we go out and we do a little bit of music. We, we preach a very short, specific message. Then we pray for everybody that wants prayer and then we give them food. We do this every Tuesday. And I had somebody in my church, a nice, well-meaning American. Like, we have to do more. They need houses. They need this. They need that. Somebody's been in Albania for about three years and they've become an expert. And see, I say, okay, we'll do that just to show you that I know more than you because you're an idiot. Uh, That attitude needs to be broken off. But anyway, um, so I I was criticized like they, if all we're going to do is talk to them about Jesus, we're not doing anything. And I'm just like, what? First of all, we are feeding them and we do bring aid and we do, we give out food packets. But it's like, if all we're going to do is talk to them about Jesus, that's all we, I mean, that is the thing we have to do. And if we don't do that, you know, if Jesus at first said, take up your bed and walk, the house would have gone crazy and nobody would have gotten saved. But instead he got him saved and then healed and delivered. Next couple of verses talk about him getting healed and delivered. The Pharisees were like, who can forgive sins? What is this about? Go ahead next. And Jesus knew because Jesus is Jesus and he knows everything. You can't hide from him. Next. (laughs) And he said, what's easier to say your sins are forgiven or get up and walk? Well, of course, it's easy to say your sins are forgiven. Because they were very religious. It's really hard to actually see the physical miracle. But actually the hardest thing in the world to do is to have your sins forgiven. But it's also the easiest because God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son, Jesus Christ, to suffer and die and be mocked and beaten and bruised and bear the penalty of our sin on a cross so our sins could be forgiven. And we don't have to walk in fear of our sins condemning us anymore. And so Jesus said, okay, fine, then get up and walk. And he got up and he walked and everybody was amazed. So why do we have these three stories? Because first, we've got to learn to walk out of our comfort and confidence in self and walk in the comfort and confidence of Jesus Christ. Two, we've got to learn that we, can, we need to reach out to those that we are not comfortable touching. And finally, we've got to move past the religion. We've got to move past. We've got to be willing to do whatever it takes to get people to Jesus. Our passion has always been and always will be reaching people and building lives. We exist. OSC exists. Not only for those who call our Savior's church their home, but also the many in our community, who have yet to find new life in Christ. 
What are you willing to do in order to bring somebody to Jesus? You're going to carry them to the roof. Don't cut a hole in the ceiling, but you're willing to cut a hole in the ceiling. (laughs) Go down to Jennings, cut a hole in that one. (laughs) Yeah, then you'll know wrath. Uh, (laughs) What are you willing to do? Some of us are so intimidated, we're not willing to do anything. And we go and we sit and we park our boat and we clean our nets. And the world continues to drown. Praise God that y'all got out and did some stuff. I'm impressed because most of the world, most of the church in the world wouldn't bother. They'd say, there's got to be a government agency to take care of this. There's got to be, you know, I went, when I was, I was running a health foundation and we had some, some things we needed for the hospitals in Albania. And I went and I talked to people and some people would be like, how can I help? And other people like, I know a government agency that can help. And I'm like, you know what? If the church did what it was supposed to do, we wouldn't need government agencies. And if the church did what it was supposed to do, we'd be struggling to decide in all of our elections which devoted follower of Jesus we should be voting for. But the church is all about other things. Parking the boat and cleaning the nets. Why don't you all stand? I'm going to ask one more time. What are you willing to do to bring people to Jesus? What are you willing to unlearn so that you can follow and be obedient to the call of Christ? What are you willing to give up? What are you willing to walk away from? You've been talking about detoxification. What toxic things, what toxic people in your life are you willing to talk to about Jesus instead of allowing them to influence you with the world? Who's the person that aggravates you the much, most? Are you willing to show them the love of God in order to bring them to Jesus? Who's your biggest critic? Are you willing to go to them and say, I forgive you and I love you? What are you willing to do to bring people?